John chapter 6, we're going to start, we're going to start reading in verse 22, John chapter 6, starting in verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set a seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word this morning and consider what your son says, said to his disciples, and what your Holy Spirit superintended to be written through the hand of the Apostle John, that we, as we look upon the word of your son, that we would be changed, that we would be thankful, that we would find great hope in him, that we would see your word clearly, ask that you would illumine our minds, that you would help us to see the truth and rejoice and give thanks and repent where needed. Father, if there are any here who are not looking to Jesus as the bread of life, I would pray this morning that they would would see their emptiness and need. They would see that Jesus alone can give them food that satisfies eternally that he is that bread. They would look to him and be saved. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the Advent season. When we say the Advent season, we mean it's the season in which we talk about the first coming of Christ. The first coming of Christ begins when we begin talking about that in December, and we carry that all the way over, really, technically, in the history of Christianity on the calendar through Easter. But generally, we do the Advent devotions 
centered around his first coming with regard to his birth, Christmas. And during that season, we often encourage you all to to do some kind of devotions with your family, some sort of biblical readings and prayer centered around the promises of the coming Christ, Jesus who has come. And many of you do, and one of the Advent devotions that we recommended to you was one by John Piper. That one was free. There was another one we recommended that cost you money, but the one by John Piper was free, and we recommended that to you, and some of you I know are reading it because I've seen your posts about it, etc. on Facebook. But John Piper at his Advent devotions gives an example, um, the one that we read, one of the ones we read with my family this week, gives us an example that I think helps ground our series this Christmas. Because we're going into a series in which we go through the I am statements in the Gospel of John, where Jesus tells us something about himself. And John Piper gives a great illustration to ground this series. Here's the illustration he gives. Imagine you're a child, and, and some of you are children, so this isn't hard to imagine. You've probably had this experience. The rest of you have been children, Some of your spouses may think you still are, but at some point you have been children and you may have had a similar experience, so you can at least remember this, but imagine you're a child who's lost in a store. And you're lost in a store and your mom has gone off somewhere else and you can't find her. What immediately happens in that scenario is you begin to panic, don't you, when you're a child. And you start to wonder where your mom is and you begin to frantically look for her and worry that you're lost. Now imagine when you're in that situation as you're walking down one of those aisles looking for her, you see a shadow begin to come around a corner. And as you see the shadow, the shadow distinctly looks like your mom. You can see the shadow, the way the purse hangs in the shadow, the way the figure is and the way the clothing is. And you look at the shadow and the hair and you say, you say, that's my mom. Here she comes. What happens to you as a child when you see that shadow? You begin to immediately calm, don't you? There she is. You begin to start to, as you see that shadow, think, she's coming. She's coming around the corner. In anticipation of her coming, you start to realize you're found, You'll be okay. There's hope for you. But here's the thing. Until she comes around that corner and you see her, you don't quite reach that point of rest, do you? You don't quite reach that point that you know now you were found. That you have this this security that there she is. It's when she rounds the corner and you finally see her and not just her shadow that your heart is finally at rest as a child. Isn't that right? You're thankful for her shadow when you see it, but nowhere near as thankful and at rest as when you see her. And the Old Testament is like a shadow pointing a lost and dying people to their only hope for a savior. If you think about the Old Testament, it's as if we're a lost and dying people, that's the case, and God is casting a shadow across the Old Testament, pointing us to the one who will find us, Jesus. Hebrews 10.1 says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, and it goes on to tell us about that afterward. In other words, the law, the Old Testament, has but a shadow of the good things to come. And the reality is Christ. 
That is why Jesus can say in John 5 to the Pharisees that you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life and it's they that testify about me. That's why he can say in Luke 24 as he opens up the word to, his, uh, to the disciples upon the resurrection, as he's speaking with them, he begins to teach them in the law and the prophets and the Psalms. That's the whole Testament. He begins to teach them about everything concerning himself. That's why Paul can say to Timothy, referencing largely the Old Testament, that the word of God is able to make you wise unto salvation. See, the Old Testament is the shadow, and Jesus is the reality to which the Old Testament points. When Jesus arrived on the scene of human history for the first time, which is what we celebrate every year at Christmas, the reality has come. And our desire this Christmas season is to point you to Jesus through the eight I am statements in the Gospel of John. We want you to see how Jesus says that he's fulfilling the Old Testament. These statements point us back to the shadow of which Jesus is the reality. And so today we start with the first I am statement in John 6. The statement that he makes when he says, I am the bread of life. So let's look at John 6, starting in verse 22, and walk through this and see what Jesus is teaching about himself. We're going to start again, like I said, in verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. What's being referred to here? The next day is the day after Jesus has fed the 5,000. If you guys remember this scene, the disciples come to him. They don't have enough bread and fish to feed all of these people. And when it's 5,000, that's 5,000 men, not including women and children. So there are thousands upon thousands of people there. And as Jesus is about to feed these 5,000, he does this miracle. He says, we have plenty of bread and fish, and he does this miracle, and you get all of these all, all the people fed. They're all satisfied. They see this miracle, and then Jesus departs and goes off from them, and the disciples at the end of this day get in a boat, and they go across the sea. And the crowds notice that Jesus didn't get in that boat with them. And they're wondering where he is. Verse 23, other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord, after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So the disciples have gone across the sea to Capernaum, and they saw the disciples go there. They don't know where Jesus is. He didn't get into the boat, but they're looking for him. So they figure, let's follow the disciples. So they all get in boats and go across the sea looking for him. Verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? It's a great question, right? You never saw Jesus get in a boat. Only one boat left. Jesus wasn't on it. And you get across the sea when you get on boats to follow him, and he's there. The appropriate question is, 
When did you get here? Even maybe, how did you get here? Well, we know from um, the information just before this passage, what the disciples know, the crowds don't, that Jesus walked across the lake, met them in the middle of the lake on their boat. And they're asking about this, and Jesus gives this interesting answer. Verse 26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, how is that an answer to their question? When did you come here? Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. What? Seems fairly non-responsive, doesn't it? What's interesting is, John sets Jesus up this way often. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to him and says, we know that you're a teacher come from God. Now this is a nice compliment in the middle of the night for a, a Pharisee essentially to set up, show up and say, we know you're a teacher come from God. And what does Jesus say to him? Truly, truly, I say to you, say to you unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. What? I just dropped you a compliment? You give me some cryptic statement afterwards? Over and over again, we see this happening in the Gospel of John. And why is that happening? Why does Jesus answer the crowd this way? Because Jesus knows what's going on in their hearts. And they're asking him a question about, essentially, when did you get here? And what Jesus is saying is, listen, you think you're seeking after me, and you want to ask me about when I got here, and and you want to know all these kinds of things, but the fact is you're not seeking me at all. Let's get right at the heart issue here. I just fed you yesterday. I fed you all miraculously. You followed me over here because I fed you and you felt full and you wanted some more of that food. The bottom line is you're not really looking for me. You're looking for something I might be able to provide for you, but you don't want me. See, they want to know how Jesus got to the other side of the boat or the other side of the sea, and Jesus sees this as an opportunity to address their motives for looking for him. Why are you looking for me? Because you got your fill of the food. They're looking for Jesus because they want to make, they want him to make their lives in the here and now better. See, the reason I need Jesus, the reason I'm coming to you is because I want you to make my life right now and the here and now better. I need you to provide some more of that bread, some more of that fish. I want my life right now to be better. And what Jesus says, you're not really seeking me. You're seeking something you think I can give you right now. We have authors that are so-called Christian authors who are publishing books telling you how Jesus can give you more fish and loaves right now. They're teaching you to seek not him, but his benefits. We have this strange idea afoot in Christianity that we come to Jesus as some sort of Buddha whose belly we rub to get what we want. We know what this is like. You see, Jesus can help with my drug and alcohol problem. And he can. But as he does, he's going to say to you, do you did you come here just, help, just for help to deal with your drug and alcohol problem, or, or did you come here for me? Jesus can help with my marriage problem. Jesus can help me fix my disobedient children. 
Jesus can fix our country. It's a mess. Let's pray that Jesus gives us a better country. Jesus can heal my illnesses. Jesus can help me succeed in my job. Jesus can, make, can help get me out of this pickle that I'm in. See, Jesus can do all these things for me, and so I will go to him when I need him to do something for me. When I'm hungry for some fish and some bread, I will go seek him out so he can give that to me. We call that everyday American prayer. I go to Jesus like he's the cosmic Santa Claus and I ask him to give me something, but I'm not interested in him. And I don't know what my ultimate need is. That isn't Christianity. Jesus is clearly telling them it's idolatry. You're using Jesus to serve your needs. We imagine our deepest need is the problem in front of us in the here and now. We don't imagine our greatest need is eternal life, forgiveness of sins, a restored relationship with the Father. In fact, when we sin, we are often more concerned about the consequences in this life than we are in our offense against the Lord. I can't tell you how many times I sit with people who tell me, and and I sit and listen to other Christians tell them, as soon as they're confessing, I've I've sinned in this way, the Christians sit and say, you know know what that's going to do to your life? You know what the outcome is going to be like? You've done this and this, and that's going to mess up your ability to get married properly. That's going to mess up your ability to be successful at work. That's going to mess up this. That's going to mess up that. And they tell them all about the consequences here and now, and nobody stops to address, hey, you you know you offended God? You know the big problem here is your relationship with the Lord? These other problems are just need for bread. They're not unimportant. They're not things that God doesn't care about. He does. But they aren't the big issue. Jesus knows, however, that our greatest need is eternal life. That our biggest problem is that God is offended by our very being. I know that's not popular to say. It's not something you often send on a Christmas card, right? Merry Christmas. God is offended by your very being. Thus he sent Jesus. But that's why we needed a man, Jesus, the God-man, to come and walk in our place. He is our greatest need. Look at verse 27 through 29. Let's walk through those. Do not labor for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. In other words, you're not supposed to labor for all this stuff that perishes in front of you. It will all perish. Your marriage will end. I don't care how great your marriage is. One day, one of you will die, and you will no longer be married, and then you'll die. It's coming. Your children will eventually die. Your business will eventually come to an end. Your ministry will eventually run out. Everything that you have in front of you will eventually perish. Don't labor for that stuff, Jesus says. 
He doesn't mean don't do your vocation well or don't have a good marriage or don't pursue parenting your children well. What he's saying is you don't come running to me just to give you that stuff as if that's your greatest need and as if that is the greatest gift I have to give you. Verse 28, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? In other words, we want this eternal life, so what do we do to be doing the works of God? What do we do to labor for that? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now, I just want you to stop and let that fall on you. Jesus, we do want eternal life. We do recognize that's our greatest need. What do we do to get it? What works do I need to perform? Do I need to come to church every Sunday? Do I need to give money? Do I need to participate in the sacraments? Do I need to go to a confessional booth? What do I need to do to get this eternal life? What works do I need? Do I need to be a good person? Do I need to love you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength and love my neighbor as myself? What do I need to do? And Jesus says to them, believe in the one whom he sent. Believe in me is what Jesus says. You want eternal life? I'm your hope. Nothing you can do to earn it. Should you obey me? Should you love me, the Lord, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Should you pursue good? Of course. But that's all because you're looking to me in faith, knowing that I'm the one who saved you. But if you're trying to do any of that stuff, should you go to church? Sure. Should you give? Sure. All that stuff. Yes. But none of that stuff will save you. That's all in response to your faith in Christ, to the fact that he has saved you. He goes on verse, <clears throat> in verse 30, and I want to address that, but, but I want to ask this question before I do. Do you believe that Jesus is your greatest need? Do you really believe that? I mean, maybe I should ask, do you believe faith in him will provide you eternal life? It's really the question, why do you even come here? See, some of you are like, well, I'm here because my friends want me to be here for their kids' baptism. Fine, okay. But why do the rest of you come here? Are you just looking for Jesus to give you some bread to sort of give you some tokens to survive life. Why didn't you show up when you're 20 and why do you show up when you're 30 and you're married and you have kids? Did you show up when you're 30 because you realized you needed Jesus and you wanted Jesus? Or did you show up when you're 30 because you realized marriage is hard and parenting is hard and maybe Jesus could give you some bread to help you through it? See, what are you coming to him for? Look at verse 30 and 31. The crowds weren't buying that Jesus is the one sent by the Father who gives eternal life. So they say this. So they said to him, verse 30, then what signs do you do that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? Never mind he just fed all of them miraculously. Never mind that. Show us some signs you do. What work do you perform? 
Our fathers, now listen to their argument. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. In other words, they're pointing back to Moses and Exodus chapter 16. And they're saying, you remember in Exodus 16? You remember that Jesus? They didn't have chapter and verses then, so you know, okay? But you remember in the book of Exodus, in the law, and the Torah, do you remember that our fathers were coming out of Egypt and they were in the wilderness and they needed to eat and so God dropped bread from heaven in front of their door for them to eat. Every day they got up, and on Saturdays they're supposed to get twice as much. Gather twice as much on Saturdays, but don't only get as much as you need to eat each day. And God provided as much as everybody needed each day on Saturdays twice as much so they didn't have to work on Sunday to get it. Well, actually, in their timeline, it would have been Fridays twice as much so they didn't have to work on Saturday to get it, but you follow me. But that's what he did for them for a long period of time to the point where they started complaining about the bread that dropped out of heaven. Now think about that. Every morning you wake up and bread is dropped out of heaven to your front doorstep and you're like, ah, I don't know, God. This miraculous bread isn't quite good enough. Remember when we were back in Egypt? But he provided for them. And they're essentially saying to him, that's what Moses did. What do you have to do for us, Jesus? The crowds want to know, if Moses provided this bread from heaven for us, where are your signs? Look at Jesus' response, verse 32. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, Now, every time he says that, amen, amen, that's what it is. That's the word amen. So be it, truly, verily. Truly, truly, I say to you. Every time he says that, you know Jesus is about to answer a question differently than what they asked. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. In other words, what sign do you want? You want to know the sign? I'm it. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is He. Now listen, who's the bread of God? He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Think of that statement. Just stop and let that sit on you. The bread of life is He who comes down from heaven. He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Moses gave you some bread. That was really the Father who sent that bread down for you. And the Father sent that bread down for you then. The Father sent me down for you now. I've been sent to give life to the world. You say, every single human being on the planet? No, it's not life without exception, but life without distinction. In other words, everyone who looks to him receives life. I've been sent to give life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. In other words, I want that bread that comes down to heaven that gives life to the world. We want it always. And Jesus said to them, now catch this, I am the bread of life. That's a huge statement. In the Greek, that phrase is ego me. Why does that matter to you? It probably doesn't. But it's important that you know this, 
That phrase, I am, in the Greek is also the phrase that shows up, and we're going to come back to it again and again. It's also the phrase that shows up in Exodus chapter 3. If you remember Exodus chapter 3, this is the scene where God comes to Moses in the burning bush. And as Moses is standing in front of the burning bush and God is speaking to him, he says, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses says, why are the people going to believe me? Why would Pharaoh listen? Who do I tell them sent me? Who are you? And the Lord responds in the Greek translation of that. It was originally written in Hebrew, but translated into Greek during the life of Christ, before the life of Christ. He answers, ego me. I am. I am. And Jesus picks that phrase up and uses it again and again in the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I've the one, I'm the one who's come to deliver my people to give them eternal life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Picking up from John chapter 4 with the woman at the well who wants some water, and Jesus starts talking to her about the water of life, eternal life, that, that He can quench every thirst. Come to me and I will quench your thirst. You think you're thirsty for this water you draw from the well? Your real thirst is an eternal thirst and I'm the only one who can quench it. You think you're hungry for this bread that dropped out of heaven that Moses gave you or this bread I fed you with yesterday? You think you're hungry for that? Come to me. I am the bread of life. I will quench your eternal hunger. I will satisfy you eternally. It's a powerful moment. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus, the bread of life, our eternal life, the Savior, came down from heaven to save his people. He came to do the work required to save us. He alone saves us. His work saves. He gives us this salvation. He gives us eternal life. He gives it to us freely and without price. We simply receive that salvation through faith. We receive and rest on him. That's what faith is. What is faith? I want to believe in Jesus. What is it? It's to receive the gift and rest on him. It isn't to do anything. It's to receive and rest. Each Christmas we're looking to him to remember that he came to satisfy our eternal hunger and thirst. Jesus is actually picking up the language from Isaiah here. I don't know if you guys know that, but, but the way that the Bible works is you, you have, for example, the first five books of the Bible, the law, and what you end up getting is later authors, those are written by Moses, later authors begin to comment on each other's work and tell us there's something more to that work than, than what you originally understood. And then the New Testament comes along and the New Testament begins to comment even not only on the original work, but even on the way the prophets often comment on the earlier work. And so in this case, you have Exodus 16 and you learn this story about the people, how God dropped bread from heaven. And Isaiah comes along, a prophet later, and he comments on Exodus 16 and says, I want you to understand something, Israel. What happened there in the wilderness when God fed you from the bread of heaven? It had a greater meaning. And that greater meaning is coming. And now Jesus is picking that text up and he's applying it to himself. He said this bread which filled the hungry bellies of the Israelites was a type that was to come in its fullest fulfillment in Christ. It was a shadow. Jesus is the reality. Look at, look at Isaiah chapter 55. Keep your, 
hand in John 6 and look at Isaiah 55. Isaiah chapter 55, you'll see this as Jesus is picking up from this text. I wish I could show you all the way through John how this is happening, but it's abundantly clear that it is happening all the way through the chap- chapter 6, how he's commenting on all of Isaiah 55. But I'm just going to look at how Jesus is commenting on the first five verses of Isaiah 55. Look at verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Now, how do you buy if you have no money? Sir, what does it mean to do the work of God? To believe in him who he sent. Free, gracious gift, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Do you see how Jesus is picking this up? Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make you an everlasting covenant. Now listen, he starts to address the Messiah. My steadfast love Sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. You see, he's picking up on Exodus 16 and the people's desire for the bread that God provides. And he's saying, stop, stop laboring for that bread. God's going to give it to you for free. And he's going to give it to you in the person of the Messiah. And Jesus comes along and picks that up. And he says, I've come to fulfill that. I am the bread of life. That shadow you saw cast through the Old Testament, that bread that you needed to fill your eternal hunger, I'm that bread. I'm the reality. I've come to fulfill it. Let me delineate two promises we receive in Jesus as a result. Look back at John 6. Back at John 6. Two promises we see in him, and, and we'll finish with these two promises quickly. The first one is this. He will eternally satisfy our every thirst and hunger. He will eternally satisfy every thirst and hunger, which our primary thirst and hunger is for eternal life with him. He, he will... He will satisfy that. Look at verse 35 in John 6 again. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's the first promise. You know, Pascal says that, that, that said that everyone has this, this God-shaped vacuum in their heart. Unfortunately, we generally fill it by worshiping all kinds of idols. And what he's saying is the only, the only way that that hunger is eventually filled or satisfied is by looking to Jesus. He's it. And he will satisfy you. The second promise that comes out of that is he will not fail to give this gift to everyone the Father has given him. Hear that? He will not fail to give this gift to everyone the Father has given to him. That's a huge promise. If you've been given to 
Jesus by the Father, he will not fail to give you the gift of eternal life, of eternal satisfaction in him. Look what he goes on to say, verse 36 through 40. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Why don't you believe? All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, there's that phrase again about himself, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you hear this glorious promise? When you look upon the Son and believe in him, he will give you eternal life. He will lose none of them. He will not let you go. We see that in John 17 as Jesus is even praying to the Father about his disciples and he's saying, Father, there's going to be a time where I can't keep a hold of my apostles, these disciples, any longer because I'm going to be on the cross dying. I need you to take care of them and keep them when I can't. You think the Father ever turns down the prayer request of Jesus? And then we're told in Romans 8 that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father where he ever intercedes for us. And the context there is that he's interceding for us to be kept, to be held on to, to never be let go of. So Jesus' promise is not just, I will come down from heaven and I will live perfectly the life you failed to. And I will go to the cross and pay for your sins so that all your sins are forgiven. The wrath of God that you deserve will be poured out on me. And I will resurrect from the dead, conquering sin and death. And I'll send to, my right hand, to the right hand of the Father and send my Holy Spirit so that he might give you life. So that if you keep walking with me and you never screw it up, then you'll be saved. That isn't what it is. What does he say? I'll do all this so that everyone who believes in me will be saved, and I will keep every one of you. See, I didn't just stop at the cross and resurrection, is what Jesus is saying. I ascended to the right hand of the Father where I ever intercede for you. His work of saving you didn't stop at his death and resurrection. It continues this very present moment as the Son is before the Father saying, keep them, don't let them go. And the Father's answering his prayers. And that's your hope. I looked him and I'm saved and he'll never let me go. They didn't believe though. The crowds didn't look to him in faith. And Jesus went on to explain it's because they're not his people. I don't have time to get into that today. I wish I did. But he gives them a warning if you look down at verse 47, it's sort of a promise and a warning at the same time. He says this, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. See, there's the promise. You have eternal life. Not you might get it. You have it if you believe. Because he is the bread of life. Who's come down from heaven to save you. Then he goes on and gives this warning. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. See that bread that you eat now and the here and now? That stuff goes away. You die. It's temporary. 
This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He's pointing to the cross. I've come to give you life. So here's the question. Are you looking to Jesus and his cross knowing your need of eternal life? Or are you seeking to give, seeking for Jesus to give you the bread that you can eat right now? Why do you come to him? At this Christmas, we're celebrating that we come to him because he gives us life. Because he is the bread of life. I, I encourage those of you who aren't believers, if any of you here are not looking to Christ, I encourage you this morning to take the opportunity to ask God to open your eyes, to give you ears to hear, that you might see that you're a sinner, that you have a great need, and you have an even greater Savior who will save you from your sins if you look to him and believe. And believe in him. Repent of your sins. Turn to him. Ask him to forgive your sins. He will forgive your sins. He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He will adopt you as his own child. And you will always be his. Never, never lost from the grip of his grace. I encourage you to do that. If you're a believer in here, don't ever forget. Don't ever forget why we gather. We gather to celebrate and remember and worship the one who came down from heaven to give us life. That's what our lives are about. Here's what we're going to do. The band's going to come up, and I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing a song, but we're going to have baptisms. And baptisms, um, I'm going to talk about what they're about, but they're a response in part to what we're talking about, and so I'm going to explain those to you after this song, but the people who are getting baptized, if you will come down to the front up here, um, Make your way down here during the song. Um, after we sing, we'll, we'll have these baptisms. And I want to explain to, the, to you what those are. And, and I want to tell you, even if you didn't sign up, but you're looking to the Lord in faith, you're welcome to come down and be baptized as well. Love to send you home wet. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for your son, Jesus, the bread of life. We're thankful that he came down from heaven to give us life, to save us. We know we don't deserve that. Father, we know we need him, though, and that he is the one who will satisfy our every need. We pray that we would look to him this morning, continually remembering that he is, he is life for us, that we would worship him rightly. We pray for those who don't know your son, Jesus, that they would look to him in faith this morning and be saved that you would be pleased to work in their lives, that they would know that, he, that Jesus is their only hope. Pray this in your name. Amen.